Hey there, and welcome to The Deeper Podcast, a podcast that's all about how we live lives that are both courageous and loving, and what that looks like in both the small and the big ways of our everyday life. I'm Reverend Sean, one of your hosts, and today on the podcast, because you know COVID disrupts literally every part of our lives, we had planned on giving you a service about reparations and what that looks like, but because of COVID impacting both my family and Reverend Gretchen's family, we didn't get to that this week. And so as, in thinking, so, so as I was thinking what we should do on the podcast today, I remembered this conversation that I had with Dr. Dan Buchanan, the Unitarian Universalist senior lecturer at Harvard Divinity School, one of my professors of Unitarian Universalist theology and history. He's also a historian about progressive social movements. Here we are a year after the Capitol insurrection, another year into COVID, and just yesterday, as I'm recording this podcast, was Martin Luther King Day. And the reason I thought of this conversation was because I talked to Dan about how social movements form and how they shape the course of history. And right now we're kind of in the midst of a rapid transformation of our social system. We have attacks on voting rights that are happening in dozens and dozens of states. We have the question of the filibuster and whether or not there should be an exemption for voting rights. What's at stake here really is the commitment that our collective being has to being a multiracial democracy. It's kind of that simple. Without a broad-based commitment and a defense of multiracial democracy, the spiritual trajectory of America is towards essentially apartheid-like repression of people of color. Now, you may be thinking, Sean, this sounds a little political. And the answer is yes. Yes, this is political because politics is all about power. And we as the church need to talk about power. And as Dr. King said, the church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. And that if it doesn't recapture a prophetic zeal, which means to talk about power and what the future is shaping out to be, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. So yeah, we need to talk about politics because that's talking about power. And we, as the church, are part of the conscience of this collective being that we find ourselves in that we call this American experiment. Now, the question is, are we partisan? No. This isn't about parties. It's about what is deeper than that. What's at stake for our souls? Because if one of the trajectories is apartheid light repression of people of color, and the other trajectory is true multiracial democracy, well, each of those will not only have a physical cost on the lives that will be disenfranchised, but will also have a spiritual cost on those who will perpetuate this system for their own comfort. And so I wanted to bring us back to this conversation with Dan because he really talks about how social movements and social change comes about and of the complex place that Unitarian Universalism is as a progressive religious tradition that is primarily made up of white folks. And what is our role to play in movements for change? So I am joined here with uh, Dr. Dan McCannon, who is the Ralph Waldo Emerson Unitarian Universalist Senior Lecturer at, senior lecturer at Harvard Divinity School. 
who is also my professor of UU history and theology when I was at seminary. Hey, Dan. Hey, Sean. It is wonderful to be with you and with everybody there in Fort Collins. Yeah, it's great. To have. The reason I thought of bringing you into a conversation, Dan, was because of an earlier book that you wrote, which is Prophetic Encounters which kind of charts this relationship between our religion and the kind of American radical progressive tradition that spans both a political and a religious dimension. I'm curious as, as a historian and a, and a theologian, and this is the question that I've been asking a lot of people, you know, as the election results have become clear and as we've you know, been kind of metabolizing the last four years, especially in kind of white liberal circles, kind of what is the crossroads that you feel like we're at. Yeah, I like the word crossroads because I, I think in a sense, the crossing that we've been at for the past four years is a crossing of two kind of long-term historical trajectories. One of them is extremely long-term. It is the 500-year history of settler colonialism and white supremacy in North America, the process by which my ancestors, I believe your ancestors, Sean, the ancestors of many of you, not all, who are listening to this, the process by which our ancestors claimed the land and labor of other people in ways that have been foundational for the long story of the United States. In many generations, ours among them, people rise up seeking to come to terms uh, with these legacies and to see if it is possible to create a different future, often by uh, creatively revisioning traditions that are themselves shot through with white supremacy, as Martin Luther King, for example, did in claiming the ideals of the American Revolution as for a vision of universal human rights that the revolutionary founders had not, in fact, envisioned. So that's the 500-year current that is crossing with the 50-year current of increasing economic inequality in this country that came after a previous 50 years of increasing economic equality. So roughly from uh, this time 100 years ago until the 1960s, people in this country, first restricted to white people, but more racially inclusive in the 1960s, gained greater economic freedom and power as the, the privileges of capital were worn away by the New Deal and the Great Society. And then with the resurgence of neoliberal economics and a politics of austerity, we've seen increasing economic inequality and particularly a bifurcation of, of privilege in this country where coastal urban communities that are well-connected and benefit from the globalization of the economy have prospered and heartland communities have really suffered. And, and I think our failure to come to terms with these two things simultaneously with the 500 years of white supremacy and the current trend of inequality that means that most people under 40 cannot expect to live as prosperous lives as their parents enjoyed means that we have great potential to chart a new path, but also as we've seen great potential for, for fascist uprising when some of the victims of increasing inequality 
take their pain and anguish out, not on the globalizing elites, but on their fellow sufferers who are black or brown. I so appreciate how you, you phrased that last bit. It gives a label to the, the kind of nationalistic kind of fascist impulse as, as a trauma response in, in a way, a response to the, the circumstance that, that we've seen these impulses after the election and we need to be reaching out across the divide, this political divide, which can, in a lot of circumstances, sidestep the understanding, this traumatic response that is at the heart of this, not only the, the reasons why people would pick kind of nationalistic desires, but also would then misplace that anger, as you said, on, on people of color and wanting to continue to perpetuate the systems that have also left them behind. But I'm curious, if you think about that crossroads, how have you seen people of faith, especially progressive Unitarian Universalists, res like responding to that, to this crossroads that we're at? I mean, certainly, you know, the most prominent I, or one of the most prominent UU responses would be the response embodied in the UU The Vote organizing that our denomination nationally committed to, which really focused on just sort of the bedrock principle of democracy, that we're not going to solve our problems unless everybody is at the table thinking of solutions. Uh, so, you know, so working on efforts to increase uh, access uh, to voting, working on campaigns in particular states to lift the restrictions on previously incarcerated people voting, you know, looking hard at policy that inhibit voting. All of these things are means to the larger end of everybody feeling like they have a creative voice together. You know, obviously we saw the fruits of those kinds of, of organizing in the astonishing turnout in the election this year. But really that's just the first step that people who have voted for the first time can also now be invited to participate in the new uprisings that will call the new administration to the best version of itself. After 2016, what I witnessed in our congregation was a lot of, of white liberals come like seeing the reality of racial division and the long history of white supremacy that, that is still ingrained structurally in, in this country. And it, it was a, a painful experience to, to encounter that for the first time, to encounter their own ignorance and the collective ignorance and the perpetuation of these systems consciously and unconsciously. And I, I'm curious, as you wrote about in prophetic encounters, that there are these moments in which human beings like encounter one another in the midst of these struggles for, for freedom, for liberation, for a deeper sense of community that are really transformative, that allow a power to be unleashed. I, I wonder about what you saw in that moment in our country. Or, and I wonder like what type of prophetic encounter was possible there or was happening there or where were some of the seeds of it? I'm, I'm just curious about maybe not only what might've been there, but what might be the encounter that our Unitarian Universalists need to have to really kind of take that next step in, in partnering for kind of a greater justice and a greater movement. Yeah. So thinking about this pattern that I've seen again and again in U.S. history of people who've experienced oppression claiming a new name, uh, a new sense of themselves, and thus a new power, simply by coming together and naming the oppression 
coming to realize, oh, this isn't natural. I'm not suffering because that's just the faded way of the universe. I'm suffering because of particular structures that human beings have made and that human beings can unmake. I think this has happened, you know, in a very strong way in, in recent years with the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. The, the sort of practice of say their names is, is a kind of classic example of this sort of power building that people who were killed because the killers did not see them as fully human can be remembered as fully human in ways that they give power to those who are mobilizing to change that. And, and the amazing thing about this kind of power building is that it's infectious, that it starts with people who've experienced oppression, but often people who have been the oppressors or been the beneficiaries of oppression, see the new power welling up and recognize that as a more authentic uh, form of power because it's power with rather than power over other people. So, so just as uh, in the Southern freedom struggle of the 1950s and 1960s, once black people started marching and sitting in for their own freedom, Liberal white people in the North said, hey, we have to go South and experience, participate in this energy that is transforming our society. So too, you know, this summer we saw so many, especially younger white people streaming to the streets in solidarity with those who were rising um, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, because they recognized that the real power was in the streets. The real power was not held by the men who killed George Floyd. What I think I maybe didn't didn't fully recognize in in writing prophetic encounters that feels more palpably present in these past four years. And I should be clear that I I actually was writing prophetic encounters in the early in the early days of of the Obama administration. What 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 I did not really think about is the dynamics that allow some people to be inspired. Some people are privileged to be inspired when they see the oppressed rising up and others not to. And at least from where I sit in Cambridge, Massachusetts, on the campus of the richest university in human history, is that the people who are inspired by the uprising of the are sometimes people, especially high levels of privilege, people who have the comfort, in a sense, to align themselves with a particular group of people. It's amazing to me how you can walk through extremely wealthy neighborhoods in Massachusetts and see Black Lives Matter signs on virtually every other house and not see those signs in, in more working class but predominantly white neighborhoods. So, so there is some, there's some way in which some people are able to embrace the uprising and other people, for other people, it's, it's an occasion for the cultivating of, of resentments on perhaps because other issues such as the epidemic of, of opioid addiction in so many parts of our country are perhaps seen as not getting the same attention uh, or simply the loss of jobs as the industrial heartland has called it. So, uh, so it's a real challenge to, yeah, just figure out what are the dynamics that allow wider and wider circles of people to see the potential 
for solidarity with the most creative social change movements. So Martin Luther King talked about with the Poor People's Campaign and what William Barber, his revitalization of that style of organizing are really seeking uh, to find ways that not only the privileged, but people whose oppression may be adjacent can see an uprising as a, as a site of commonality and, and solidarity. So one of the things I appreciated about your courses is I learned about a lot of experiments in, in new ways of being. Of, of social movements that, that started <laughs> with great intentions that kind of fizzled out in, in practice or were divided or taken in by other movements. In any moment, it's difficult to understand if this moment is going to be a watershed moment or not. George Floyd's death was, again, another watershed moment that invited people in, but he was not the first and will not be the last a person of color killed by police in this way. And there's been decades and centuries of that. And, and some of them can coalesce and catalyze movement and some of them don't. And so I'm curious, the first part of the question is like, what do you see as those catalysts for the, for a moment becoming more than itself, more than just an isolated something? What do you see as the catalyst, the ingredients that take that into this larger movement that can spawn these uprisings? And then the second is when it doesn't inspire that that, that uprising, how is it, how is it building or setting the stage for, for that future as well? It's one of the other things I appreciate about your work is seeing the kind of seeds that are planted, even if they don't come to fruition immediately, how are they contributing to something uh, larger that we can't track in the moment? One of the paradoxes of, of social change movements is that the big flashy headline grabbing moments always build on decades of patient, inconspicuous, marginalized preparation. And yet there's always kind of a disconnect or a leap between the preparation and the moment. So a great example would be the practice of sitting in for civil rights. In the 1930s, uh, a number of socialist pacifists on both black and white in the United States came to realize that it was going to be impossible to build a socialist society, a beloved community in the U S as long as the legacy of white supremacy remained unchallenged, that fighting patterns of segregation and racial oppression was a prerequisite to creating an economically equal society. And they were very inspired by the work of Mohandas Gandhi in India. And so they began using Gandhian tech to challenge segregation in Northern cities, New York, Chicago. These people created an organization called the Congress of Racial Equality, and they patiently created very balanced, half white, half black groups of people who would go to segregated skating rinks or restaurants and so forth again and again through the forties and fifties, really building up uh, a repertoire of skills for how you use Gandhian techniques to fight racism in this country. And they, they sensed, I think that they weren't going to be able to do this in the Jim Crow South unless they first kind of perfected the techniques in Northern cities. So by the time. Uh, you get to 1960, you have this great reservoir of Gandhian insight uh, and wisdom. And because of the Montgomery bus boycott, people are aware that it's a moment where, uh, where Gandhian techniques can come south and be transformative. 
And so in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, a fellow named James Lawson, who had studied with Gandhi, um, been very active in this kind of Gandhian work in the North, came to Nashville, Tennessee, began working with a cluster of students at Fisk, the local black college, you know, elite black college, and the not-so-elite Black Baptist Seminary, where young John Lewis was a student. And they worked out an elaborate strategy for how they were going to mobilize students to fight segregation in Nashville. And they had their plan, they had their spiritual practices, everything was ordered. They knew exactly what they were doing. And before they did it, a group of young people in North Carolina who had seen a little bit about Gandhian activism on television, but were not connected in any direct way to these decades of movement building, did the same thing first. So there was, there was a moment that the, the longstanding planners could not have predicted, and it relied on the fresh energy of people who hadn't been planning, but were spontaneously reacting to a form of oppression that had become intolerable for them. But ultimately, both parts were key to the long-term success of the movement because those two groups of people, the highly prepared Nashvilleans and the much more spontaneous folks in North Carolina did come together to create the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and really a transformative national movement. And I think in different ways, you know, that is the dynamic that we always confront. You know, why was it that the people of Minneapolis mobilized in a nationally attention-getting way in response to George Floyd's murder when there had been so many other murders before and after? It's hard to know, but the long work of spiritual preparation is a big part of what makes the movements that respond fruitful. It also makes me think about how we often, or it can be easy when we look at historical social change movements to, to isolate them or, or yeah. kind of monolize them. Like, oh, well, there was the, there was the women's suffrage movement. And then there was like the civil rights movement as if they were a, like one homogenous group of people with one set of tactics and one set of talking points which is not true. The diversity within them was massive, but also the interconnection between social movements. They're, they're, they're self-supporting or like there, there's connections between. And so I'm, I'm curious about those. Yeah. I'm curious to hear more about how you, you, you see the, the ways in which these diverse movements flowed into each other in different ways that were the supportive to this overall movement in uh, and, and what that might help us see right now as we combat the challenges of racial uh, racial justice, but also environmental and climate justice and income inequality all at the, the kind of same time. Yeah, I think one of the most dangerous half-truths for progressives today is the idea that identity politics, which is to say organizing that starts with people's particular experience of oppression divides the left or divides progressive impulses. Uh, and there is a, there's a lot of historical evidence that just the opposite is the case. Um, when the Black Power movement crystallized in the late 1960s, it inspired a whole host of kindred identity-based uprisings among Chicanos, among women, among First gay, then lesbian, then a more holistic queer community. And 
And these movements have continually learned from one another, challenged one another in ways that have been fruitful and, and laid groundwork for intersectional forms of organizing. So, you know, I suppose, I suppose a related error is the idea the difficulty or tension means things are going badly. So when women of color called out the predominantly white second wave feminist movement for their unexamined privilege, I think a lot of people nowadays read that as, as evidence that second wave feminism was somehow flawed in its, its essence. When in fact, the, the womanist challengers wouldn't have wasted their time yeah. challenging second wave white feminists if they hadn't seen those other women as doing work that needed to be done and that could be done better if the people involved in it were held accountable. So, you know, so whenever we find the need to challenge one another, and this is happening, you know, so many different ways in Unitarian Universalism, whether we're the ones issuing the challenge or the ones receiving the challenge, I think we can think of the challenge as a way of being faithful to the best self of the person on the other side and not as a way of drawing a distinction or a wall. I feel like there's a, a real embodiment of our theological principle of theological diversity that critique and accountability to our commitments actually enhances not only what we believe, but how we practice our communities, even if it demands a kind of a structural shift in, in who we are, which is, I think, what we're seeing in work like the Committee on Institutional Change within Unitarian Universalism, which is asking us to live into not only the aspirations that we've set for ourselves, but the plans that we've made for ourselves over and over again, but have yet to really integrate into our, into our culture. We haven't practiced what it means for a Buddhist and a liberal Christian and a staunch atheist to really honestly tell one another why their different ways of understanding how the world works are compelling to each of them. And if we were more involved in those kinds of conversations, I think we would be better prepared for the hard conversations that need to arise when someone has been speaking or acting in a way that excludes trans people or when someone has been speaking or acting in a way that, that dishonors the wisdom of people who don't have college educations or whatever it might be. You say it's like kind of the theological, the UU theological tenet that that, that is tracking towards. Like, what is, what is that theological move that you're inviting? Well, let me, let me just backtrack and say, to me, theology is any kind of account of the world, humanity, and the sacred and how they're interrelated. I suppose part of the theological move would be, and I think that maybe one thing we can say theologically is that we don't live in a world that lends itself to singular truths. We live in a world that lends itself, that, it, that, is, where, that has diversity built in to a degree that people can find deep meaning in logically incompatible accounts of what the world is like. And that means we have an obligation to always expose ourselves to the perceptions and experiences of other people. If we lean deeply 
into our own experiences and our own deepest convictions, you know, we're looking at a one or two dimensional world when the actual world has three or four, maybe seven or 10 uh, dimensions to it. Also, I'm curious as well about how, how you see within a lot of our congregations, we have, um, like distinct, like archetypes of people, you know, there are people who come to our congregation primarily as like a spiritual community, searching kind of a spiritual truth. And then there's a group that, that come because of, uh, the shared ethical values and it being a platform for the, the work that they're called to be doing in the world. And one of the tensions that I feel in, in kind of my ministry is trying to kind of bridge and invite the dialogue between these two kind of groups to see the church and to see the church as a place that is, that is trying to integrate those two impulses together in, in a dialogue. And it's, it, it's a real challenge because of like how the different, even just on a practical ways, like even within, even within the same church, these two groups might not interact because of how the church structures itself. But I, when I see people within our community who are able to do both, you know, I see some of the leaders in our congregation who have done a lot of their own spiritual development work. And I see how that's showing up in their activism or their, in their leadership within the institution. It really does make a difference in, in how they're uh, able to respond to challenges or endure struggle. Like I see their capacity to, to live in plurality a little bit deeper if they're able to integrate those, those two perspectives, but it's not the norm. Yeah. One of the great mentors for freedom fighters in the 20th century was a guy named Howard Thurman began his career as chaplain at Howard university in Washington, DC, ended it as chaplain at Boston university in between the first sort of deliberately interracial, a religious congregation in the United States, the church for the fellowship of all peoples in San Francisco. Thurman himself, you know, embodied the kind of religious diversity that we have in Unitarian Universalism. He grew up in a poor black family in, I want to say, Northern Florida, but his dad was a free thinker and his mom was a devout Baptist. So already he had to navigate those differences. And in preparing for his career of activism and transformation, he spent a lot of time studying at Haverford College, historically Quaker school, because he sensed that social transformation would be deeper if it built on a foundation of mystical spiritual practice. Uh, and I think the gift that that gave to him was the ability to be a really affirming presence in the lives of younger activists who wound up going in, in many different directions. What you were saying about the two flavors of Unitarian Universalists that you encounter in your congregation also put me in mind of uh, something that I experienced very much in the Camp Hill intentional communities that, that some people, that the people who are drawn to those communities are there for a variety of different reasons. Some people are there because they themselves have disabilities and want a community that will give them good work to do and to really make a contribution to the other people they live with. Some people are drawn to Camp Hill because they really value the specific spiritual practices, anthroposophy, and want a community where those practices occupy a central place. And others, more like me, you know, my own path to being interested in Camp Hill was simply thinking that the creation of co economically cooperative communities 
is a really good strategy for building an alternative to the capitalist economy that's caused so much damage to human lives and to the natural environment. And when I first started spending time at Camp Hill, I kind of thought that the anthroposophical spirituality was an unhelpful ballast that was weighted down, that people talked in ways that others were found hard to understand. They had beliefs that others found really off-putting, beliefs about humanity having evolved on multiple planets before getting to this one, just, you know, for one example. And the more I got to know Camp Hill, the more I realized that my own impulse to make those distinctions would be like saying to an apple, oh, you know, the juicy, fruity part, that is the really useful part. And wouldn't it be better to just be an apple with just that and no stem and no, no seeds? But of course, that perfect apple would not survive from generation to generation. And the presence of people with one another who actually have different reasons for being together creates more resilient communities that will carry all of their wisdom into the future. I think that where I see the the strength of those different perspectives magnifying, you know, experience in the congregation is when there is interchange and that when there isn't, and when, when it's just like my part is the, is the real reason. And I don't understand the other parts, but we're just stuck with each other that like, um, that we don't get the full fruit of, of what it needs to be in community and that we're all held by a tradition that that isn't monolithic and there's different acts, like, I mean, there's different roots of that tradition that people are connecting to in different ways and that they're all part of kind of this, this tapestry that is the faith. And that's okay for us to have different ancestors in the faith, but there still has to be a way of belonging together and practicing together that, that brings us into relationship. And that was one of the things that I was just curious about as I was re-looking over prophetic encounters was the, the role of tradition in both social change movements and also religious movements. And one of the things that you said was that, I'm quoting here, that radicals passed on their tradition during conservative epochs and those rare moments when activists transformed the structures of American society, that there was something in these conservative times in which, you know, their ideas were not prominent or gaining traction in any way, or there wasn't kind of big manifestations of it, that they were doing another sort of work, a kind of tradition building work it, that I feel like is so a, a vital part of congregational life is that tradition building work, that passing it on. And so I'd love to hear more about that tradition, the, the manufacturing of it or, or the passing of it, the creation of it, and what that has meant for social movements and what it kind of means in, in a religious community context as well. Yeah. So, you know, in the book, I use the phrase American radical tradition as a kind of holder to kind of tell a common story that included struggles against white supremacy, struggles against capitalism, struggles against patriarchy. And, but because I was using that phrase, I was particularly attentive to those individuals before me who had also used the phrase, who had also named the existence of a radical tradition on which they could draw. And it tended to be in times that we think of as more conservative times, the 1950s, for example, that the most energetic work of sort of formulating what the radical tradition mean took place in ways that did prove to be very germinative for what happened after. 
I have to say that after the past four years we've lived through and contemplating what the next four years might have in store for us, you know, the frame of conservative times and progressive times, it's, it's hard to apply uh, to our own moment, you know, having lived through four years that were not so much conservative as teetering on the brink of fascism. And now having seen an election that has, you know, depending on what happens in Georgia, probably has locked the politics of gridlock presided over by a president-elect who promises to reconcile the diverse factions of America, maybe maybe not reconciliation on the foundation of genuine repentance with the threat of fascism we've seen in the past four years hardly disappeared. So, so none of this really computes to the progressive era, conservative era paradigm, but it is, it is certainly a time when tradition is, is a resource that we should not forego. And, and I think in Unitarian Universalism, we have the benefit of of two different sorts of traditional resources. On the one hand, the tradition of all the people in our movement who were a foundation to certain justice struggles, whether, you know, it's the role of Olympia Brown and so many other pioneering ordained women serving the cause of women's suffrage in the second half of the 19th century or Egbert Etheridge Brown's role as a central organizer and anchor for the socialist movement in Harlem in the 1920s. We have all these, you know, great stories of people in our tradition who have been foundational to socio-political change movements. And we also have, you know, our more specifically theological tradition of religious ideas that can be meaningful in the context of social change. And and I think particularly of the universalist idea that all of humanity has a common destination and the ways this theological idea can inspire efforts to have us walking together towards that destination in solidarity. There's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently. We've seen the the uncovering of white supremacist organizations in the last four years, that kind of explicit endorsement or a naming of them from high offices. And we know that a lot of them have long in terms of their traditions in this country. And some of the new ones, a lot of them arose during the Obama administrations as kind of a response and a kind of beginning of the politics of kind of grievance that we're seeing playing out now. But What's been most fascinating to me is how effective they are at recruiting people in mm -hmm. and, and the, the way in which they build culture and identity as a part of how they, they're targeting, especially white men who are feeling disenfranchised, who are on the internet, who, are, who don't have a deep sense of pride in identity and who don't feel like they have a place in society. They don't feel recognized and they play on those experiences and give them a very positive and a positive as, as opposed to not a negated identity, but something to be identified with. And that inspires them to be a part of these systems that are now, you know, domestic terrorist organizations. 
And there's something about the building of culture that we see on the right and in these movements that just not sure if progressives are embodying that same sense of of building culture and identity amongst our our people in a way that maybe is leaving like leaving a lot on the table in terms of our our power. It sounds like from that question that you've read some of the same testimonies that I've read from people who were previously involved in white supremacist organizations who have so often talked about the way those organizations gave them a sense of belonging, a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose. The class-bound character of Unitarian Universalism, the ways in which our, the identities of our congregations have so often been parasitic on the colleges and universities from whom we draw so many of our members, has has really caused us to shortchange our own transformative potential. We're right now involved in this really important work of undoing white supremacy, and we're grappling in really sincere and honest ways with the way our own institutions have, have been complicit in white supremacy for centuries. And this work is so empowering, so, so challenging and empowering for people within Unitarian Universalism. And yet the language we use is a language borrowed from academia. And, and I, I really wonder if. Can you say what, like the language borrowed from academia, what does that mean? Well, the phrase white supremacy itself has a particular meaning that, you know, it's the nobody already has the answers, so we might as well learn together. I think that's apt. I saw on Facebook a quote from a, an activist, a woman of color saying like white people need to realize that they're not going to undo white supremacy through book clubs. Mm, yeah. And I think it's that same academic impulse, like that sense if we, if we understand the, the sociological conceptions of the day of the problem, that that'll be, that'll be the work. And of course, it's not that it, that analysis isn't important. It's just that it's not the totality of the work that needs to be done. And we have to think about the accessibility of it. I appreciate the conversation, Dan, uh, and your contributions to, to our movement. Thank you. Truly. Thank you so much for having me part of your conversation. Listening to that again, it both feels like we are in the same but really different place as we were. And that interview took place in November of 2020 as we were getting the results of the election. And it was mostly confirmed that Joe Biden had won. You know, this was before the insurrection on the Capitol, before the police officers who killed George Floyd were convicted. And so in some ways we're in the same place, but in other ways we're in a different place. And I love so many of the, the ways that Dan thinks about how we approach this work together. I'd love to hear what you think of this conversation with Dr. Dan McCannon. You can always get in touch with us by email at deeperpod at D-E-P-E-R-P-O-D at gmail.com. I promise next week we'll be back on a trajectory with our reassembly required series, which is going to focus on how do we sustain relationship in these desert moments in which nothing seems to be nourishing us? Reverend Elaine is going to be sharing a message about that. As always, please rate and share this podcast. 
leave a review. All of that helps other people hear about it and spreads our message of courageous living even further. Well, once again, thanks for listening.